Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with John Kachuba, author of the new book Shapeshifters, a history out in 2019 with Reaction Books. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm doing well, Yana. Thank you. Ah, Thanks for joining me. I'm glad we found the time to talk finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, listeners, I have been a bit, uh, a little bit overwhelmed this semester. So John's been quite kind with his time. Um, all right. So, and I see you're hanging out in Ohio this morning. <laughs> and every morning. <laughs> and every morning, enjoying a beautiful fall Ohio morning. It is actually a beautiful fall morning today. Very cool. 37 degrees, but Ooh. quite nice. That is nice. Yeah, the Midwest. We've, you know, that's what the thing we say to ourselves about the Midwest. We get all the seasons, you know, which whether is, we you want them say, or not, whether you want them <laughs> or not, right? Uh, yeah, you can get all of the things. All right. So I really enjoyed Shapeshifters. Super fun book to read. Very interesting. So I'm looking at your past publications, and I see a clear interest in the supernatural, the paranormal. There's ghost hunting. So how did Shapeshifters happen? Well, Shapeshifters sort of grew out of uh, my work with ghosts and my ghost books. I have five ghost books. Um, And I do a lot of public speaking on on shows like yours or at conferences, libraries, you know, whatever. Um, And I've noticed that when we get to a QA and a session, people always tell me about their experiences with ghosts. But so often I hear them talking about other things that they may have seen they've witnessed or heard about or whatever. And when I hear their stories, I'm saying, those aren't ghosts. There's something else going on because they talk about like transformation. So I was hearing this enough that I thought, well, I want to look into shapeshifters and see why I'm hearing all this sort of, you know, local buzz about them wherever I go. So as I was doing my research on it, I just, I just discovered that shapeshifters have appeared basically in cultures, the shapeshifter character, I should say, has appeared in cultures pretty much all around the world uh, and going back as far as Neolithic times uh, right up to today. And they figure in, uh, you know, mythology and religion, and popular culture. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, uh, I'll put it in quotes, but the actual experiences that people have said they've had with shapeshifters. So um, it, it just it just became such a <laughs> such a wide open topic and became so broad. Uh, that's a small book, but I probably could have tripled it in size if I had taken every shapeshifter story I ever heard and put it in there. Wow. Well, um, yeah. I, I mean, this is interesting that you go from like biblical pre you go from prehistory through you know yesterday, um, and I'm guessing that just reflects the variety of stories you're hearing and what you're finding. Yeah. Um, so, um, the, uh, like, you know, so I, so you've got a lot of people talking to you, right? So you've got these first person accounts, but what else are you, where else are you finding shapeshifters? What are your, what's your source material here? Well, you know, I looked at a lot of classical works, especially when I was talking about some ancient, uh, shapeshifters, like in Greek and Roman mythology, you know, Ovid's metamorphosis is just every page is a shapeshifter. Uh, and usually Zeus, he seems to be the the champion shapeshifter. You know, I think in my book, I think I noted something like 12 different uh, types of um, entities he became, mostly animals, but sometimes other people or whatever, you know. Uh, 
But so I looked at some of those classic things. There was a great text from the 17th century that has a very long name. I can't remember it, but it was written by a monk. And it had a lot to, it had a lot to do with revenants and ghosts and vampires. He was basically cataloging them all. And he got shapeshifters in there, too. So um, just some of these really arcane sources. But despite that, uh, or I should say in addition to that, there was like news accounts. Uh, New York Times, for instance, uh, carried a story about a shapeshifter in Uttar Pradesh, India from like 1996. Uh, so there's a lot of written accounts about shapeshifters. Uh, so there's there was a lot of material to go to go on there. Yeah, it looks like a lot of a uh, lot of literary sources, a lot of talking. But you know, there's material culture. You're looking at paint, you know, like cave drawings, and it's, it's, right. it's a really broad thing. Well, um, I also traveled to a lot of the locations as well. Like for that book, I was in uh, I was in uh, France, Portugal, Italy, uh, Romania, Belarus, Ukraine. <laughs> I was all over the map uh, trying to locate and visit sites where there was some connection to a shapeshifter or supposed shapeshifter in history, like Romania, for instance, you know, vampires, Dracula, right? Mm -hmm. So I was certainly at all the Dracula sites in Romania, or so-called Dracula sites. Okay, so is Dracula, Dracula is a shapeshifter? Well, interesting thing is that, uh, you know, vampires as as the stories originated about vampires is they were not shapeshifters. Um, Ram Stoker was, I think the first one to make his vampire a shapeshifter. There's a great scene in there where I, in his novel, uh, Dracula, where I think it's Lucy who's in bed and there's this huge bat banging against the window, trying to get into her bedroom. And all of a sudden the bat disappears and instantly count Dracula is standing by her bed. The indication or implication being that, you know, he had transformed. Right? Then there's another great scene where uh, Jonathan Harker is looking out the window of uh, Dracula's castle. And it's at night and he sees Dracula coming down the wall. But Dracula is climbing down the wall head first, like a squirrel, you know, using his, his mm -hmm. feet and hands. So, <laughs> so Stoker was the first one really to talk about a vampire as being some kind of a shapeshifter. And since then, uh, everybody's got on the shapeshifter wagon for vampires. You know, oh yeah, they can do all kinds of stuff. And and typically, it's they change into a bat, just because that's what Stoker did. <laughs> sure. Well, and you know, with the coats and the the, the right. early early Dracula movies, you, you know, it's an easy move. Right. And there is. Um, a, do any bats actually drink blood? That I don't know that. There's a vampire bat. Yeah, there is. Uh, feeds on on livestock, you know, cattle, things like that. South America, so there is a vampire bat. Makes some sense. So that made some sense, maybe I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's like when that's 18th century Romania, but the shape the the um, shape shifters the shape shifters are everywhere, right? All across the globe, all through time. Where um, what do you, like where else did you find them? You're <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. Well, I mean, again, pretty much uh, everywhere. I mean, every culture. Uh, I think, you know, obviously a lot of what I looked at was uh, from the, I was in Europe. So a lot of it had to do with uh, werewolves and vampires, which is the big thing, big thing in there. But when you go to Southeast Asia and I had been in um, not so much for this book as much as previous books, but I'd been in uh, Vietnam a couple of times, Cambodia, Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka, and did some work there at Thailand. Oh. 
Uh, and when you get into those countries, uh, shapeshifters become much different. They're, they may have vampire tendencies. They may feed on people and that kind of thing, but they're not what we consider. They're not the same type of shapeshifter that we're looking at. In Japan, for instance, um, Japan has a very, very uh, detailed ghost lore about them. You know, here in America, we have a ghost. You see a ghost. It's a white spectral figure of a person, right? Right. In Japan, they have classifications of ghosts. They have, oh, you know, they have hundreds of different types of ghosts. So you're not just a ghost, you're a special kind of ghost. Um, and a lot of those ghosts who, again, are supposed to be the spirit of somebody who died, when they come back, they shapeshift. So they don't come back just as a white spectral figure, you know, rattling chains coming down the stairs like like we have here. Mm -hmm. They come back and take the form of usually another person, but sometimes an animal, sometimes an inanimate object. Uh, and frequently they come back to seek revenge uh, for some wrongs done to them. For instance, they were murdered. <laughs> they consider that a wrong. Yeah, and so, yeah. they, <laughs> so they seek revenge on the person that did it, you know, or whatever. So um, very, very interestingly, different from culture to culture. Uh, there were stories I got from Africa uh, and the shapeshifters there, there were a lot of were animals, not necessarily werewolves. We talked about a bat, not before, mm -hmm. just longer. And there was a, a were bat that seemed to transform into something pigs. Uh, you, you know, almost any kind of creature in Africa is capable of transforming mostly because, and at least in Africa, it's believed that these are shamans who are transforming themselves into animals for various reasons. And I have an interesting uh, interview with some Bushmen, which I, it's not a first person interview. I didn't do it, but I picked it up from a, a book about shamanism. And it was some African Bushmen who talk about transforming themselves into lions, into tigers, into gazelles, antelopes, any kind of animals they want. And there's a very vivid description of how this person feels. They say, you know, I can see claws. I, I feel the power. I feel the strength come in. Well, as we know, looking at them, you wouldn't see anything. There's no physical transformation, yet they believe they transform. Um, and that's something that I mentioned in the book, too, is I make a distinction between internal and external shapeshifters. Talking about the internal being a psychological change. Uh, where people believe they've transformed to something and act out that way. But, you know, for all practical purposes, you look at them and say, no, that's Bob on all fours growling <laughs> at us. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. Well, why does he think he's a werewolf? Yeah. Which, that would be disturbing. Hey, Bob, please yes, stop. Yes, it would be. Yeah. So, you know, when we've got these internal and external changes, so, and in the African cases that you're talking about, these shamans who transform, or then you talk about... Um, a woman, this human woman, she was a blackbird and she turned into a woman and landed and she's a witch. What are, why are they doing this? Like, what is, what's, what are they getting out of the shift or what, what is the help for them or what? Is, yeah. Like that start there. What do they think they're getting? Right. And that's, and that's a question that I've always asked. Like, you're right. The story was about uh, people seeing this blackbird or several blackbirds flying over their village in Africa uh, and then they find this old woman in the street laying there and she's all beat up and everything. And she says that she's a witch mm. and that she had transformed herself into a bird. And she was flying back with her coven back to wherever she was going. And apparently she 
lost her ability to fly or something because she crash landed <laughs> and the villagers found her, you know? Um, so in a case like that, I would say, well, if, if they were going to a, a witch's a Sabbath or whatever they were doing, then, you know, changing it to a bird would make sense. Fast way to get there. You know, I don't know. Um, but that's a question I've always asked is there are certainly some ulterior motives to changing into, you know, shapeshifters. I think of, um, the uh, uh, Mort de Tour, and I think of um, uh, Uther Pendragon mm-hmm. uh, with the lady, uh, forgetting her name already, but when they beget Arthur. Okay. You know, he, he transformed, he has Merlin cast a spell where she thinks, Lady Agrain, mm-hmm. that he, she yes. thinks uh, he is her husband. So he takes on the aspect of her husband. So there's a, there's a reason for shape-shifting in that case, right? He wanted to be with her. So, I mean, sometimes there are ulterior motives. Other times it seems like there's no good reason. And frequently they're curses. Uh, look at the fairy tales, Beauty and the Beast and things like this, where, you know, some poor soul is transformed into something else, not by his own wishes, mm-hmm. but simply as a punishment or a curse. And you're just you're stuck with that until a beautiful woman kisses you and, breaks the spell <laughs> and frees you from the curse. Right. I mean, <laughs> this has very different social functions though, right? You know, um, so you get turned into a beast because you're bad and that punishes you. But then some people seem to want to be turned into a beast. They become beasts on purpose to, to, to gain the strength or the power, you know? So there's some really different social functions that I see. Right. And I think if you go back far enough, we mentioned the, you mentioned the cave drawing and that was from a Neolithic uh, era uh, cave drawing found in a, a cave in France. And, uh, you know, it depicts this looks like a reindeer or some kind of a deer standing on its hind legs. But if you look very carefully at the, uh, the paws of this animal, they're not hooved like a deer would be but they look like they have indentations. They have lines that the drawing looks like that they have fingers and toes. Then if you look at the head, the eyes are directly forward like ours rather than placed to the sides like a deer. So the implication, at least anthropologists believe the implication is this is showing a shaman transforming into a deer. And this was basically hunter, you know, ritual magic. Mm -hmm. Um, You can imagine the shaman would have the tribe's hunters in front of them and he'd paint these things on the wall and they'd be chanting and whatever, and probably using some natural hallucinogenics from the environment uh, and taking those and getting into this state where they believe that they were deer. So how easy then is it to go out and capture a deer if you can imitate the deer and get right up to them, right? So so there's a definite uh, utilitarian purpose there. You, know, you feed the tribe by, by doing this, whether... You know, it'd be interesting to know. I, I wish we could know, like, how successful were those rituals? Did they really work or, you know, because they certainly believe that they were close, that they were deer so they can get up to the herd. But what did the deer say? Like, mm, no, that's, that's Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not that. But, you know, kind of like method acting, too. If you're, like, living in a cave and rolling around in deer skins, you're not going to smell that, that different and, right. you know, I mean, I can see some ways where there would have been a real power there, like really, um, you know, beneficial effects of even mimicking the shape of a deer that might get you closer to a deer or something, you know? 
Right. But that's yeah. interesting, this idea that if you take on the characteristics of your prey, you'll like be better at getting them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's part of it. It's interesting that you mentioned method acting. I've heard other people say that too, and I hadn't thought about that. But certainly a method actor really gets into the role, right? I mean, 24-7, he's in character. Um, yeah, yeah. Which which is sort of what I think of when I think of cosplayers. Mm-hmm. You know, these people that get elaborate costumes to dress like, uh, you know, Tolkien characters or Marvel heroes or whatever it is. But they, too, do the same thing. I mean, they are in character. If you go to any of these large uh, cosplay conventions, which I did go to a couple for the book, uh, you can't even talk to these people because I would speak to them in English and they'd be speaking to me in Klingon, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they, w- they wouldn't break it. Like, well, I don't know what you're telling me, you know? Um, so that to me, that's a form of shape-shifting as well, you know? And you ask yourself, well, what did they get out of that? You know, what do they get out of dressing up like that? Um, are they in some way uh, accounting for maybe something that's missing in their lives, uh, some attributes they don't think they have, uh, power, strength, uh, invisibility, <laughs> you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and they're, and they're looking to get that. And so for a couple of minutes, you can do that, um, or a couple hours, uh, or is, there, is it just mere play? But I would, I would say we just got finished with Halloween, Mm-hmm. My favorite holiday. And I would say that every time somebody puts on a mask or a costume, there is a definite choice as to that mask or costume that they wear. Right? They don't say, yeah, I'll pick up this mask. No, no. They think of it. They think about it. For a long time, yeah. Yeah, right. So somehow they are creating a whole persona that they then put on. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're they're shape shifting. Yeah. Again, it's an internal one, but I mean that's it's the same yeah. thing. And they act out. Yeah, sure. And then wander about, you know, dressed as this, acting this out, making these things. It reminds me of the that Halloween Buffy episode where everyone actually turns into their costumes. It's kind of one of them. <laughs> right, uh, right. Yeah. No, exactly. It's, it's really fun. Well, you know, it's, people are getting these things, but just the idea that you can change, I mean, is, is pretty powerful, like, which is why we make up mythology about it, right? Like you said, Zeus is just forever turning into things and Hera's turning people into things because of their interaction with Zeus. Right. Yeah. So there's this power that the gods have to do these trans- transformations too, which is indicates just like how much we like this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I talk about in the book um, that the ancient gods, like we're just talking now, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, Egyptian gods, and, and you know what goddesses, whatever, um, that they had those powers. They were shapeshifters because those were powers that were divine powers and they were restricted to divinities. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you read Ovid and there wasn't any mortal with the power to change somebody else. It all came from the gods, right? But then we see as we get into... Uh, as we get out of that sort of classical period and, you know, start moving into the medieval ages and all this and the Renaissance and everything, we see things changing. And I, and I sort of think that it's because those old gods now have clay feet. Nobody believes in all these gods and this pantheon of gods. Right? They don't believe that anymore. Uh, technology is increasing. Knowledge is increasing. The printing press, all this. We're getting smarter. We're getting more intelligent. But we still believe that there are people smarter than us better than us mm-hmm. those people now might be royalty but there's also another class of people that develop and that's 
what I would say the wise women, or they would say witches, but you know, people like that, herbalists, alchemists, even uh, mm -hmm. going onto the darker side, sorcerers. But we now start giving them these powers, whether they have them or not. We start believing that, okay, the gods don't have those powers, but they couldn't have disappeared. Now, these people are sort of like the new gods in a way, but they're mortal. They're not quite gods, semi-demi-gods maybe, sure. right? But they have the ability to shapeshift. That's why, you know, witches are always supposed to be shapeshifters. Shamans are. So we see that. And alchemists, what are alchemists trying to do? Change base materials into gold. They're trying to shapeshift metal. Yeah, so this divine power that's accessed, but not in licit ways, right? Not in the proper ways. You're doing it like kind of sideways. You're going at it right. backwards. Right. Yeah, it's right. still it's still sort of the black arts. It's still sort of uh, considered, you know, sinister in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and then I mean the the you know if we're thinking about in the in, even into the Middle Ages, I'm thinking about like Loki. But by the high middle ages, nobody believes in him anymore, really. But, you know, Loki's around or the Kitsune, these like trickster gods who play, who, who shapeshift too for kind of devious, mischievous, sometimes more dangerous ends. Right, right. Yeah, we get into, and that's something that I think is important is that we have this notion, I think, that shapeshifters are always evil. They're always, you know, violent, vicious werewolves or they're vampires that are going to suck your blood, you know. Um, but there are certainly cases of uh, of shapeshifters throughout the world that are, like you say, just mischievous, you know, pranksters. Uh, but there are also ones that are actually good. There's a whole group of fairies in mm -hmm. Italy that are shapeshifting fairies, and they do good things for people. You know, they'll they'll drop coins on your front porch or something. You know, so Thanks. so yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So there's there's that as well. Um, I think the preponderance we still think are, you know, sort of these evil folks, but there are certainly uh, decent shapeshifters around. Yeah. yeah. There's, well, and these kind of borderland creatures, the fairies that like live kind of halfway in fairyland and halfway here, you know, these um, just people who live on the outsides, you know, that kind of, they're a little bit, they're kind of like us and they're kind of not, and they're kind of frightening, but they're kind of not. And those are interesting characters. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, there's one, there's uh, something called a kappa, uh, K-A-P-P-A in Japan. And it's interesting. It looks almost like a, almost like a frog in a way, but it has a, uh, it's a strange story. It has like a depression, a shallow depression on top of its head, in which it always has water. So if it's out on land, it's got this, it's a water creature, but if it's out on land, it has this shallow depression. And it's got like a little, like literally like having a bowl in your head of water. Um, I don't know what that's about, but they're, they're pranksters. You know, they'll do things like uh, they'll steal things. They'll, if you're on a path, they'll change the path, you know, so it goes a different direction or something. Um, but then they'll also eat you and kill you. Uh, if you <laughs> so, sure, okay. so, you know, they, they have kind of a mix of qualities there, you know? Um, yeah. And then what was the, the extremely creepy, I wrote its name down. Uh, the Rakshasa? Super scary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From uh, Southeast Asia. Yeah. Predominantly Thailand. Yeah, there's there's a whole class of them. They're basically, um, what, what would I even call them? It's sort of equivalent to like dragons in a way, kind of like the Chinese dragon. Uh, I mean, it's funny. I'm, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking up into another room and I have a, a 
hand-carved mask from Bali of a Rakshasha. <laughs> it's, it's glaring at me right now with fangs and big eyes, you know. Um, but yeah, they too are, they're, they're pretty violent creatures. And, uh, but they're also protectors. See, that's, that's the thing. We have this back and forth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they could be violent and they could be murderous, but they are also uh, protectors. And it's not unusual to go to some temples uh, in in Thailand and everything else and Southeast Asia and see statues of Rakshasha. And frequently they have a sword or something. They are like at the portal. I mean, they are guarding the temple, you know? So um, again, kind of a dual purpose. They're sure. not entirely evil. They have a reason to be in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, cause like theoretically I'm thinking about them and I'm thinking about, you know, um, kind of the monster theory that I've read and how, these are creatures that aren't are not quite one thing or the other, and like that that is fundamentally not trustworthy. I need to know what you are, right? So you, you have this thing where you can't like, yeah, this guy he might protect my temple, but he might kill me and eat me. Right, <laughs> right, and you never know. You yeah. never know what day is protect day versus eat day. <laughs> so yeah and i think that might be why they would fall under this like i'm thinking about them in the context of your work with ghosts and like why they're scary you know you just don't know what you're going to get from them that's right there's so there's so much uncertainty you know they're they're un it's like when i think of uh you know fiction like unreliable narrator you know Mm -hmm. well these are unreliable characters because you don't know what they're going to do or what they're about they may present one aspect, but that's not the real aspect. Uh, you know, what, what are they really? And I'm not even talking just about the physical changing transformation, mm-hmm. but just the, sort of the, the mental transformation as well. Uh, you know, is this be a good day for them or a bad day for them? And what's that going to say for you when you meet them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and in Western civilization, like whatever that means, but you know, I'm thinking about that's one of the other things about say the devil is the devil deceives the devil looks beautiful, but he's the devil. You know, like this place where we just we can't really trust what we're seeing. Um, You know, so I see like um, this, these characters and they they represent kind of they can represent evil. They can represent um, like divine. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's this place where it's just about like casting off restraint. Um, You you open with the talk of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right. Right one of the most famous of fictional shapeshifters. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the key element to why shapeshifters are so popular and have been so popular throughout culture. Because I think, so going, going to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast will probably know the story, but you know, you basically have this upstanding, decent, moral physician, healing people, helping people who, despite all that, has this burning desire to experience, what would it be like if I can throw off all the bonds that hold me in society, you know, throw off the, the legal laws, the moral laws, the religious code that I live by? What if I can just throw all that away for a couple of minutes and just run wild in the woods and howl at the moon, right? What would I do? What would I be like? Um, and I think, my mind, you know, we, we're animals. I mean, human beings are animals, whether we like that or not, we have an animal nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have, we all have a dark side to us, some darker than others. But I do think that what the shapeshifter character offers in a lot of ways is a vicarious 
opportunity to sort of throw off things. You know, you can read a novel about shapeshifters or watch a movie about shapeshifters. They can come out of that and go, man, that movie was awesome. Oh, man, I would love to do that. You know, well, you didn't do it, right? <laughs> but you sort of experienced it by watching that movie. And even if the shapeshifter was, you know, a, a bad shapeshifter vampire, you go, wow, wouldn't it be great to go around killing people and sucking their blood? Well, if you say that, <laughs> there yeah, might be something wrong with want. you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, maybe but, don't say that. But. No, but I mean, and that's, that's another, I mean, back to Halloween, right? That's like, there's always the joke that you get to be however slutty you want to be on Halloween, right? right? You get to, you get to play this character that's not you. So you get to do it for a minute and right. then come back to like well, sanity and reason. Yeah, and I talked a, I talked a little bit about um, masquerade balls in England during the 18th century. And this was fascinating because the masquerade was a phenomenon from Italy. And when it came to Anglican, Protestant England, it was like, oh, my God, this is coming from those hedonistic, papist, Italian, hot-blooded Italians, you know, right? Um, and yet these masquerades were very popular. And the reason was exactly what you're saying. You can come into a masquerade. And you wear a mask and maybe a costume and you were fully able to do whatever you wanted. You know, the licentiousness was rampant in you know, these places uh, because it was it was safe. You were hidden. You, you're taking on another character. Uh, and of course, you know, the authorities eventually, uh, you know, clamped down on these things and outlawed masquerades and all that. And we're doing now, though. Right. But um, for the same reason that you're talking about is you could. You weren't killing anybody, but you're indulging in behavior that you would not normally have indulged in if you were just your usual self. You never would have thought of, you know, going up and, and fondling some woman that you don't even know, <laughs> right? Right. No. But at a masquerade, you know, it's a mask. Who are you? Who is she? You know, you're anonymous folks. No, and you have this, this another space. So today is a great day to have this conversation because I left my office to come home and do this talk. And my students are right now in a drag workshop. So <laughs> I have a, a drag king who came in and talked about drag and gender. Oh and so there's, they're dressing up and now, and it's, you know, there's um, cross gender drag, but there's also bio drag and glam drag. So everyone's just putting right. on makeup to be this other version, this creature that they've made up that's cooler than they are. Right. right. Or something neat and exciting. And you talk about that. You talk about uh, drag and uh, gender fluidity and that is a shape shift as well. Yeah. And I, and I went, you know, I even went in a little bit to, uh, you know, transgendered folks and things like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on that and I didn't want to get into the weeds and insult anybody or whatever. But um, to me, that's a way of shape shifting. Although those folks are, are, I think, finding who they truly feel they are, you know, but still it is, it is shape-shifting. I mean, in it's, in it's most severe form, especially if it's actually done, you know, physically, uh, mm-hmm. you know, surgically, yeah. whatever to, to change somebody. Um, but there's a reason again for that, right? It's because they're fulfilling, in this case of fulfilling who they think they, they are, you know, and, yeah. and their personality, you know, and, um, I'm not one of these people, and I don't think you are either, but there are people who find that very frightening, right? There are people who are really deeply upset about drag and transgender existence. You know, this is, it's just another borderline of places that are, that can be um, unknown and maybe unsettling for some people. 
And, and I think, again, it goes back to what we said earlier. It's because, because they are unknown. Um, I mean, there are people who are fluid, uh, gender fluid. And I, I hear people say to me, well, I just met this guy, this girl. You know, they, they don't even know how to speak about him. Um, and and I, I understand. I understand their confusion. And that's off-putting because you don't, you know, those, those folks don't feel like they, they know even how to speak to these people. You know, do I say ma'am? Do I say sir? Do I, do, I, yeah. do I say her? Do I say his? Do I say theirs? What, what, what do I say? You know, uh, and we don't like that. You know, our, our, I mean, honestly, our, our brains look for conclusions and for forms. They don't, doesn't want random stuff that it can't understand. It has to compartmentalize yeah. everything, put things in little boxes. So if something is out of that box or sort of hanging over the edge, we don't know what to do with it. And it's like, you know. Yeah, it becomes this very, um, yeah, it's this very kind of space that is can be really challenging. Right. Um, right. And then also powerful, right? And, yeah. and so there we go. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about is, so we've got like, prehistory to yesterday again. So do you think the shapeshifter is going to ever lose its power? Do you see this ever going out of fashion? We just talked about this new example of kind of how the, the cultural power this still has. Like, right. No, I, I don't think it will, because as like I said, I think it, I think it speaks to something within us, you know, some hidden needs, hidden desires, mm-hmm. uh, hidden fulfillment, you know, uh, unfulfilled desires. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not, you know, whatever. But when I put on my Superman costume, I am all it, you know? So I, I don't think I, I, it's lasted so long. Uh, I don't think it'll die. I think it's with us. And I think it evolves like you're, like you're talking about here, whether it's drag Queens, whether it's cosplayers, whatever. But um, I mean, Halloween is more popular now than ever before, you know? So so no, I, I think it's around for a long time. And I'm just interested to watch the evolution because I've seen throughout my book how the form, the character has evolved, you know, and what it's what it started off as and what it is today. Uh, mm-hmm. And you have people that actually fully embrace the idea of shapeshifters and believe they're real and believe that they're out there. Uh, you know, and I think they're probably normal people in every other regard, except that they believe there's shapeshifters out there. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there are people who believe things, you know, that and that are like not, a, you know, not necessarily the norm. You have, you wrote a lot of books about ghosts, right? And right. ghost yeah, hunting. Right. Right. I know people who believe very strongly that they have had encounters with the supernatural in some way or another. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, there was just a survey that came out. I can't remember who the pollster was with, what group, but it just came out and they were saying that uh, 46% of Americans believe in ghosts, 46, which is something like five points above what it was only the year before when I took the poll. Wow. Uh, well, that speaks to something else. I don't want to get uh, sidetracked by ghosts, but I think that when, I think when times are bad, like during wars, during famines, during COVID, Mm-hmm. Uh, that people look for something greater and bigger and outside themselves. Uh, it's religion, it's God, but it's a spiritual realm that they're sort of looking at. And ghosts fit into that. Uh, if you're not a, a religious person, but maybe spiritual, 
you might think, well, you know, there's a, there's something else. So maybe there's another realm. There's ghosts. There's got to be another afterlife. Things will get better. So I do think uh, I'm not surprised to hear that the poll numbers have gone up in the yeah. last 18 months or so with COVID. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Um, and I'm happy for a little mystery. I'm happy to live with it. I like not being sure about everything in the right. world. Well, yeah. you know, Einstein said that he did not want to live in a universe that didn't have magic in it. So, right. And that's from yeah. a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there we go. I'm a pretty sharp guy. Yeah. So, uh, what are you working on now? What's your newest new project? Well, it's nothing like what I was doing before. Ooh, <laughs> I also, yeah, I mean, I write other things. I've written some historical novels and things like that. And I'm working now uh, on a historical novel about an 18th century English hoax that uh, completely took in all the smart, supposedly aristocrats. Of, of England uh, during the Enlightenment period, no less, called the Bottle Conjurer. So, oh, cool! Yeah, 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 it's well. And if you look up Bottle Conjurer, you'll—I I didn't realize this. I just stumbled across it, but there's a whole lot of stuff. The short of it is that a, a duke was telling people that he was going to bring a magician into town, into London, who would disappear. He would disappear into a wine bottle. He would put himself into a wine bottle. Everybody said, of course, that's absolutely impossible. It can't be done. So he had sold tickets, made a lot of money on selling tickets. And, of course, the guy never showed up because there was no guy. And the Duke <laughs> hightailed it out of town with a lot of money. Um, so uh, newspapers in London after that for weeks were running satirical ads and, and laughing at the, uh, the high-class aristocrats who all came to this theater because, uh, you know, they, they were going to be – they wanted to see this thing where they had been saying before only, you know, only the lower class would believe crap like that, but they went themselves. So anyway. Oh, that's well, great. That sounds really fun. It's the jumping, I, it's a starting off point. For yeah. The, all right. For, I love hoaxes. I love um, kind of that, the mad idea that all these people, you know, that everyone's going to gather around and. Um, right. Yeah, but they were in the theater down too when no one showed up. So that got a little crazy. Sure. Yeah. They were a little bit angry. <laughs> yeah. A little um, bit. Yeah. Okay. So, well, you will go back to ghosts though, right? Well, it's, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's hard for me to keep them out of anything <laughs> that I write. Uh, so yeah, I probably will do more. I I'm, I'm looking at, uh, shapeshifters a little bit more too. I don't know if there's anything more I want to do with that, but I, I've just, I, I know that the book was so broad that I know there's areas where I can probably drill down more and maybe get, maybe cut a, a smaller slice of it and blow that up a little bit more too. You know, the psychology of it really interests me uh, that we're, we're talking about that a lot here. Um, that whole idea of why the shapeshifter is popular and why people buy into it and why it lasts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I find that fascinating too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll read that book when you write it. So okay. <laughs> there's one. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, that's, uh, that's, I think, you know, I, I've written, I, I'm an academic. One would be great. <laughs> yeah, Someone who's not my mom would be fabulous. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. So, Hey, I've taken up enough of your time today. Um, so I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much for joining me. It was really an enjoyable chat. 
Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun, Yana. All right. And uh, listeners, please check out Shapeshifters. It's very cool and a very interesting look kind of around the globe, around space and time and a wonderful phenomenon.